0: Rethink the Bible has been this long mini-series within the series. You know, it go all year long, really, if we wanted to, on Rethink. Because every time we come together, we're to rethink and reconsider everything that we hold dear in this Word of God so that we might have a stronger relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and walk in obedience to Him. But this is going to end all that with this last sermon on Rethink the Bible. And today I want to talk to you about rethinking your defense of the Bible. A vacuum cleaner salesman was going house to house. He wasn't having any luck in that community because other vacuum cleaner guys had already preceded him. So he headed outside the city limits out into the rural area and he was going to all these farmhouses, went down every dirt road you could ever imagine. He went down this long dirt road he gets to the end And finds this farmhouse. He knocks on the door. The lady answers the door. And by this time, he had worked himself up. He had to get a demonstration in. So he had a can of dirt from the front yard. And right when she opened the door, he tossed it in there on her carpet. And he said, I'll make a deal with you. If this super-duper heavy-duty vacuum cleaner doesn't get up every bit of that dirt, I'll eat what's left. She turned around, walked away, went to the kitchen, came back, handed him a spoon Said, so we don't have any electricity out in these parts. <laughs> the problem with assuming things or presuming things, sometimes you have to eat dirt. You've got to be able to back it up. And there are critics out there who want to claim that this is not truly the truthful Word of God. They've got to be able to back that up. And many do not do that. They. Take presumptions. They make assumptions by what someone else said. Someone else, a dear friend, doesn't believe the Bible. A dear friend doesn't believe in God. And so they say, well, I don't either. And they make assumptions not based on fact, but on hearsay or on falsehood. But before we pat ourselves on the back about being people of the book who do believe this is the Word of God, we ought to ask ourselves this same question. Do we have a defense? Are we going on assumption or presumption? Because when we started this about a month ago on the Word of God, we said one of our, unfortunately, most common answers we give is, well, I was taught to believe the Bible is true. My parents told me the Bible is true. My Sunday school teacher believed the Bible was true. The preacher preached on it and said the Bible was true. And here's one that's uh, really tossed around out there. Besides that, I've tried it and it works for me. And if that's our defense, we need a better defense, I think. We need a better defense, and I've tried it, and it works for me. Because what do you say to the individual that is attending a 12-step program right now for alcoholism, and he is there, and he's going, and he's going faithfully, and they've told him and taught him, as they do, to believe in a higher power, however you come to know that higher power to be. Whatever you come to know that higher power to be. You believe in that. You've got to believe in a higher power, they say. He hears that. The next day, he's having coffee on his back deck, and he looks out there and that same little squirrel comes trickling out across the yard that he's seen for two years. And he says, you know what? That squirrel has shown up over and over out here. I think God's trying to speak to me through that squirrel. In fact, I think that squirrel is my higher power. He's been so faithful. So over the next year, he actually is able to get beyond alcoholism. He works through it. He gets delivered from it. Someone asking him, What do you believe about God? And he says, well, I believe God can show himself through the animals. God speaks to the animals. In fact, I think this squirrel that comes in my backyard is is God. I think that's who God is to me. What do you think God is to you? What do you say to that kind of person? What do you say to the Mormon who says, I've tried the Book of Mormon and it works for me? What do you say to the Muslim who says, I've tried the Quran, and it works for me? The man who says, I believe that squirrel's God, I've tried it. It works for me. See, that's a very weak defense for the gospel. It's a weak defense for Scripture itself. And I think we all would do well to increase and improve our defense as to why we believe this is truly the Word of God. Scripture tells us to be ready to give a defense for the faith something other than, well, I've tried it and it works for me. So we're told and commanded to do that. Look, this. This Bible isn't true because it works for us. It's, it works for us because it's true and it's real and it's alive and it's active. And it has the Holy Spirit working with it and behind it. But look on the screen, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you and answer them with meekness and fear. Now go to 2 Peter, because in 2 Peter he outlines for you and I a great defense of the gospel. It's really what he does. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. This is what Peter says For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses. You ought to underline that word eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory. In other words, from the heavens, from God above, saying, This is my Son whom I love, with Him I'm well pleased. Verse 18. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven and when we were with Him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, we've we've been on that for a couple of weeks. But it sounds as if Peter's having to answer critics and skeptics who were saying that Scripture's unreliable, that Jesus was not the Messiah, that the things He did did not really happen. It's like verses 16 through 19, we have a defense for us as well. And so I want to give you this defense, this wording of a defense, as, we, uh, as I've found in the words of a pastor from Spring, Texas, he's in Kenya now actually, named Votie Bakum. Some of you have heard Votie Bakum preach perhaps. Here's what he says, and I thought it was good, so I've stolen all this, all right? Let's just make it personal. I choose to believe the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetimes of other eyewitnesses who reported seeing supernatural events taking place which fulfilled specific prophecies and who claimed their writings to be divine rather than human in origin. And this can be your argument. That's what I'm getting at. This is to be our argument. It's not mom and dad said so. Our argument has to be better than that. We used to live in a day and age, people my age, where everybody pretty much went to church at some point time or another. Everybody believed, they just accepted that God was real, whether they served Him or not, whether they put their trust in Jesus or not, they accepted that as true. But we live in a postmodern age. People don't believe that anymore. People want to be convinced. People want to disprove or, or prove things to be true or not. They're not just going to take our word for it. So here Peter argues, just like he had to do in his day. He argues for us. Here's our defense. There were multiple eyewitnesses. Now, that's simple, isn't it? Somebody says, "Why do you believe the Bible's true? Well, I tried it and it works for me. No, that's not going anywhere. There were eyewitnesses for one. We read about them in the Scripture. So I believe the Bible because there were eyewitnesses who lived in the time of other eyewitnesses. They weren't just one or two people. Individual eyewitnesses laid claim to the things that Jesus did. They saw Him. Small groups said the same thing. And then a huge group said the same thing. So we have people who were eyewitnesses. Peter says, we weren't coming up with myths. We weren't coming up with clever stories because Lord knows we've heard plenty of clever stories, fairy tales, fake stories. We weren't doing that. We were eyewitnesses of His Majesty. The things that happened, we saw them happen because we were there, He says. I want you to turn just a, two or three pages to the right. Keep your place there, but two or three pages to the right will be easy for you to do. First John chapter one verse one. First John. So that was Peter. Now here's John. John was the oldest apostle. He was the last apostle to die. Died like a hundred A.D. Okay. He was with Jesus. He walked with him. He was the one that we believe that Jesus always said the apostle Jesus loved, the disciple Jesus loved. All right. So he's the last one alive. His his writings are the latest. And so he he writes his gospel late, he writes these three letters late as well. And 1 John 1, 1 John, not St. John, 1 John 1, he writes this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. Who's he talking about? Jesus. We have seen it. And we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. There's something about having eyewitnesses like Peter and John, individuals who saw what happened, Groups of people that saw Jesus after he had risen. And seven times in these three verses, John states they saw, they heard, they touched Jesus. We were with him. You know, we slapped him on the shoulder. You know, we swatted a fly on his back. We got the mosquito on his forehead. Boy, that was great. You know, I mean, he doesn't say that. I'm just saying he's human, he's real. He was with us, we walked with him. Paul makes the same argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can jot it in your margin or go there. Verse 3 through 8. For what I received I passed on to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He keeps saying according to the Scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. He didn't have the Scriptures, the New Testament Scriptures. He's writing the New Testament Scripture right here, right? So when he says according to Scriptures, he's talking about according to what was prophesied. So let me start over in 1 Corinthians 15.3. For what I received I passed on to you, Paul says, as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to what the prophets said He would do. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, Peter, there's one witness, and then to twelve, there's a small group of witnesses, and after that He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, there's a pretty good size Group of eyewitnesses. In fact, if we had 500 sitting here in church, we would just, we'd be so excited, wouldn't we? The place would be filled. So we shouldn't think that 500 is not a significant group of people. And I got to love this because he goes on. He says, Most of whom are still living today. I love that. Can you imagine? Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep or died. And then verse 7 he says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. See, Paul didn't walk with Jesus. Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He had an encounter with the risen Christ, just as the others had an encounter with the risen Christ. And when Paul writes this letter, about 30 years had passed since Jesus had risen and since the time of Pentecost. And he says, Of all those witnesses to whom Jesus appeared after He rose from the tomb, most of them are still alive. So if you don't believe what I'm saying, go ask one of them. Go ask those people because they're still around. And you see, having eyewitnesses makes for a stronger defense in any court of law. It's a strong defense when you have people who were there and who saw what happened. You say, well, yeah, but some people don't get their story straight. Look, They had all these witnesses and they probably corroborated a story together. And I would tell you this, I love watching things like cops and... And CSI, you know when they go and they investigate several people who saw something, what do the cops do? They separate them. You wait right here, and they pull one over here, and they ask them questions as to what happened. Then this guy, this cop, he goes over there and he asks that guy what happened, what he saw, what took place, what did y'all do, you know. And and then they come back together and say, what would he say? Oh, he said this. Well, that's not what he said. He said this. they're going, yeah, they're just making up a lie. These are our guys. They're making up a false story. And so the larger the group, the more the chances of the the story not matching up or being proven to be true when it does. Because you have so many eyewitnesses, right? And So that's what you have here. You have eyewitnesses. And so make that part of your defense. The Scripture's loaded with eyewitness accounts of what Jesus did while on this earth during His three-year ministry. Here's a, number two. There are reliable manuscripts. Reliable manuscripts. Man, I've been keyed up about this all week long. I just love this kind of stuff, don't you? Alright, reliable manuscripts. Know that there are no original manuscripts of the Bible. You say, well, that just blows all this out of water then. What you just read from John... And what you just read from Peter, what you just read from Paul, that wasn't the the one document they wrote, handed down to us? And the answer is no. I don't believe. They may have some fragments that they've stumbled on, but they don't believe they have any of the teetotal, original, first-hand documents. And you say, well, then our defense is somewhat weak, and I would tell you no, it's actually stronger. Because if that's what they had, they could tamper with that. But let me tell you what they have. But let me proceed with this. Most of all the New Testament books were written about 12 to 35 years after the resurrection of Christ. The earliest copies found, we date back, scholarly experts date back to 125 to 150 A.D. when those copies were made. Which means those earliest copies of the manuscripts whether complete or fragments, and they're able to put them all together, they're a hundred years removed from the time the originals were written. You say, well, how can, that, how can that be a stronger defense? Well, it gets better. Critics use this to claim that the Scriptures cannot be trusted. They had to be tampered with. I mean, you, they happen a hundred... What we have is dated a hundred years after probably the originals were written. It can't be good. It, it can't face scrutiny. Well, that's what they claim. That the monks took them and they hid in their, when they copied things down, they just put their own two cents in there and, and that's what we have. Well, if they did some of that, and sometimes they did find some when they studied where over in the margin there would be something written. Or in between two might be like something parenthetical, what we'd say would be in parentheses or something like that. And they knew that was a person writing that in there inserting it. How'd they know? They compared it with other manuscripts. And so that one gets tossed out. That guy shouldn't have done that. It's tossed out. But all the rest of what he wrote might have been perfectly matching up with everything else. So critics use this to say that none of it can be trusted, but they had a way of discovering what was trustworthy and what was not. But here's, here's two fronts in which those people who are critics of this, of the manuscripts, fall short. To claim that they're not reliable, they have a manuscript problem, because in order to change the New Testament, they would have to go and locate every written manuscript that was in circulation at that time in every home, in every building, at every place. They would have to locate every one of them. And that includes what we know and have as 6,000 copied manuscripts. 6,000 plus portions of manuscripts found throughout Asia Minor, Spain, Africa, the Middle East. Because that's how many we have dating back to that time. Next... After finding these 6,000 plus copies, they must somehow manage to take them, steal them, do whatever, rewrite the content, and do it in the same exact way so that it shows that it had, was the original, the original copy, even though they didn't have the same leather that it was written on or the same papers that it was written on and available to them, because now they're a hundred years removed, right? Or, they, nor do they have the same ink. And all these things are tested. All these things are tested for authenticity. Last, they would have to return these copies to their rightful places and owners without them getting caught doing so, and that's an impossible task. So experts found these 6,000 copies, and when compared of these 6,000 that they have narrowed it down to, there is 99.9% accuracy between all of them. These people, these critics have a major manuscript problem. Second, to prove this, they have a dating problem also. They argue that these 6,000 plus copies are unreliable simply because they are 100 to 150 years removed from the dates of the writing of the originals. But it doesn't fit the normal standard they also use when dating other literature, other ancient writings. They don't use that standard. They don't use it at all. In fact, they would say that is more reliable. It's very acceptable evidence for proving the reliability of secular writings so long as those copies have a minimal number of mistakes or misspellings or any discrepancies. Here's some examples. Julius Caesar wrote Gallic Wars. Of the Gallic Wars, there are only 10 known existing manuscripts, not 6,000, only ten. And the earliest one is 900 years removed from the time of the writing. 900 years is a long time. But they consider it reliable, these existing manuscripts. Why? They pass the test. They agree with each other. Aristotle wrote Poetics, and there are only five copies of his writing in existence. The early, reliable, earliest reliable copy... Found dates back 1,300 years from the time of the original writing. 1,300 years. Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, the copies are 2,100 years removed from the date in which he wrote them. How can they say that they're reliable? Well, they match up. They match up. The New Testament, more than 6,000 copies that are only 100 to 125 years removed, not 2,100 years removed. They were written during the lifetime of many of the original eyewitnesses still living during the days of John. There were some who were alive. John died in 100 AD. Some of them were still living up until the days of Polycarp, John's disciple, who became the bishop at Smyrna. We know that. So not just five copies, not just 20 copies, Not 2,000 years after the fact, or even 900 years after the fact, but 6,000 copies have a 99.9% accuracy located throughout the known world at the time. Third, these eyewitnesses reported seeing supernatural events. Turn back to 2 Peter chapter 1. Just giving you fuel for your fire, okay? They reported them. 2 Peter seventeen 1, your defense here. Verse 17 and 18. You say, well, there were eyewitnesses. The manuscripts are reliable. There were supernatural events that they saw and reported and recorded for us. In verse 17, Peter says, We saw Jesus receive honor and glory from God the Father when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory, talking about hearing the voice of God, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased when we were with Him on the holy mountain. He says, This happened, this took place. Jesus, remember, had taken Peter, James, and John with Him on the mountain. He said, wait here with me. The Bible says they waited so long, they built these little huts. That's what they used to do. That was one of the Jewish things that they did in the celebration of booths, right? Tabernacles. And so they built these, and they stayed there for a while with Jesus. And while they were there with Jesus, He was transfigured. He took on a glorified state with them. And who shows up? Moses and Elijah show up and appear with him. In fact, one of them said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. In other words, we can't believe this. Old Testament saints right here with you before our eyes. And what we're seeing of you, you are not like what you were when you were with us. You're taking on a heavenly state here. We're talking eyewitness accounts of miracles performed by Jesus and the apostles. Withered hand growing back. A man blind receiving his sight. A paralytic, a paralyzed man since the time he was born. He said, rise and walk again. He rose and he leaped around and he began to praise the Lord. Or how about this one? Jesus telling his disciples, get in the boat, go across. I'll meet you over on the other side. Then a little while later in the ship, one of them says, hey fellas. Didn't Jesus say he was going to catch back up with us later? That's what he said. Did he say how he's coming? No. Hmm. Well, he's coming. (laughs) There he is. He's coming. And here comes Jesus out across the water. Here's the best one of all with their accounts, these supernatural events. Friday, dead. Sunday, risen. Amen. Friday on the cross. Sunday, an empty tomb. So you can have a defense. I choose to believe the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetimes of other eyewitnesses who reported seeing supernatural events taking place which fulfilled specific prophecies. Let's just touch on that. There are prophecies fulfilled. Prophecies fulfilled. To prove the Bible to be unreliable, critics would have to somehow, somehow, changed the more than 300 prophecies written from the Old Testament about Jesus which occurred pertaining to Him alone. His birth, virgin born, His life, His ministry, His death, burial, resurrection, the sky growing dark uh, for three hours, the, the veil of the temple being torn in two and, and opening the way for everyone to come to to the Lord God through faith in Jesus Christ. All these prophecies pertaining to him had to be changed... You have to go back and change the documents. Facts such as where he would be born, that he would die, how he would die, that he would have been betrayed, that he would be crucified alongside two criminals, was prophesied, and a host of other details. And it's funny how 700 years before Christ was even born, Isaiah shared the details of how he would die. He says in Isaiah 53, 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led... to uh, to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers remained silent, so did Jesus not even open his mouth. And then 730 years later, Matthew and Mark both write in their Gospels that Jesus stood silent before Pilate. He stood silent before his accusers as he was being falsely accused. I want you to know, if you falsely accuse me, I'm coming back at you. I'm going to say something. I'm going to stand up for numero uno right here. Jesus said nothing. He knew he was innocent. He said nothing. He stood silently and he took what was coming to him. So for those who, don't want to claim, who want to claim the Bible is not trustworthy as God's Word simply because it's unreliable, they have to deal with these unchangeable facts. First of all, they've got a story that was written in three languages, Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew, written by 40 men who lived on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, most of whom never met one another because they, they, they lived over the span of time of 1500 years but who wrote about God, who wrote about specific people, places and things and events in a way that flows together as if it were a single book. How is that ever possible? It's easy. It has one divine author moved upon the hearts of these 40 writers and carried them along by His Holy Spirit as they wrote His history of redemption to all mankind, making their writings divine and not human in nature. So until people are able to prove that more than 300 prophecies were not fulfilled about Jesus alone, and that the ancient manuscripts were all somehow changed and switched around so that Jesus fit those prophecies, and that the eyewitnesses were all high on crack and get Jesus to come down to the earth again and get back in that empty tomb, we're going to accept the facts based on evidence of who He was and what He did. And that the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses who reported to us supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and who claim their writings to be divine rather than being human in nature. Oh, wait, wait just a minute. Don't forget verse 19 there in Second Peter. Don't forget verse 19 because that's like putting icing on the cake. If at that moment you feel the need to do this, this is the place to do it, then you look at them in the eye and you say, oh, by the way, I tried it and it works for me. Amen? It works for me. That's verse 19. You can trust the Bible. The question is, do you? You can believe on Jesus and be saved. The question is, will you? Will you do it? And have you done it? You're to be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks for the hope that you have and do it with gentleness and love. The question is, are you prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you?